Morning. Glad you all made it today. If you're a guest with us, welcome. Just first back, uh, first time back in a long time. Glad you're here as well. You picked a great Sunday to come to church because we're starting a brand new series called Don't Do Life Alone. And what's unfortunate in our world today is that life alone is what exactly many of us are doing. I'm here to tell you it is not good. It's not God's best plan for your life. I know some of you are thinking, listen, life alone sounds great. You know, put me in an isolated cabin, give me some good books to read. I'm going to thrive. I would much prefer to do life alone, but uh, it's, the reality is isola- isolation, life alone, it's not good for you as a hu- human being. You all seen that movie, Castaway? Yeah. You're right. When a year into it, uh, Tom Hanks boots that volleyball out of the cave and he's like freaks out over it. Wilson, Wilson, never again. Wilson. Okay, some of you are tracking with me on that. Others of you are not. But my point is, life alone kind of causes you to do some crazy things. There's actually a lot of truth to that. We, as human beings, were created for social interaction. So my plan over these next four weeks together is to show you from your Bible that God has designed you to not do life alone. In fact, my goal is to show you that we're better together. However, I know some of you maybe don't trust the Bible. Maybe you're new to the whole Bible thing. You maybe don't even know much about God, and so that's okay. I'm glad you're here, but just so we can be on the same page moving forward, you need to know that even secular scientists have proven that life alone is not good for you as a human being. A guy named John Kakiopo, who runs Chicago's Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience, He's been studying loneliness and human interaction for over 40 years here in America. He was interviewed by Forbes magazine a while back. Here's what he said. I found this interesting. He said, we know, okay, so, so this is like scientific fact. We know loneliness makes you feel terrible. It's bad for your mental health. Tom Hanks showed that to us. It's bad for your well-being. It goes down. Depressive symptoms go up. Your likelihood of developing mental and affective disorders increases. It's also bad for your physical health. In a meta-analysis of 3 million people, okay, 3 million people, which they controlled for confounding factors such as demographics and objective isolation, he said loneliness increased odds of an early death by 26%. If you're lonely, you're going to die sooner, which here's why this is important for you specifically today. Because in the 70s and 80s, loneliness in America was around 11%. In 2010, it was 45%. You would think loneliness would be trending down. I wonder how could that be with technology and everything, Facebook and Twitter? Surely we're more connected than we ever have been before. Should loneliness be going down. Apparently not. In fact, statistically speaking, some of you probably came in here today and you're feeling this exact way. You feel alone. You feel isolated. Maybe you're depressed. You're struggling with some of these feelings that come with isolation and loneliness. So what can we do about it? I mean, it's clearly bad. So so how can we get past this? Like, is there something we can do to solve the problem? I think so. But cards on the table here, I think the only way it's going to get better for you or anybody else who's feeling isolated only is if God intervenes. 
I know I'm a pastor. I have to say that, right? I mean, that's kind of the the deal that the only way your life is going to get better is if Jesus makes himself known to you. I get that. So this morning, I want to talk to you on the subject of don't do religion alone. Shouldn't do religion by yourself. Just to set up where we're going, have you ever kind of messed something up and, and somebody was like, bro, you had one job, just one job. Here, I'll show you a couple examples of what I mean on this. Get ready for winter, <laughs> maybe in Florida, right? Okay. We got, there's some ice. Looks like popcorn. You got one job, one job. Put the popcorn, right? Uh, Asia. I don't know much about geography. That don't look right to me. Okay. Thirst place, baby. Jackpot. No. That's the school. Sh- school. Sh- I'm not, I, I'm not, yeah, right, okay. Last one. Sweat tea, baby. That came from me. I went to Dunkin' Donuts. I said, all I want is some sweet tea. And she gave me that, some sweat tea. That does not sound very, it's not what I was after, you know. I just saw uh, on Twitter yesterday about the Wichita State Water Tower. I, I refused to put that on the screen because I was like, no, that's not, I'm not even, I'm not promoting that in my alumni. I said, Wichita Staddy Universite. You know, I mean, you had one job, just spell Wichita State University. We couldn't get it right. But now, here's what's interesting about this. Okay. God shows us that we actually only have one job to do within Christianity. Okay, I want to show you this. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open it up towards the back. A place called the New Testament. You want to find Matthew. Okay, just look for some guys' names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how it's going to go. Get out your phone. Click to Matthew. That's fine. You want chapter 22. Okay, that's the big number, 22. Uh, we've got one job. That's the point here today. Some of the religious leaders of the day have gotten together. They're quizzing Jesus on some things. They're trying to trick him, which was kind of dumb on their part. But they asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Like, Jesus, is there just one thing? And you need to know that there's over 600 Jewish commandments, not to mention the the big 10 that were given to Moses. So they're trying to trick Jesus because there's not just one thing. They're like, man, we're going to get this guy. There's no one thing. And Jesus responds to them. This is, this is great. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He says, teacher, which is the great, greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all the commandments hinge on this one thing. You've got to love God and you've got to love people. You see, Jesus is saying here, you've got one job. Love God love people. But wait, that sounds like two jobs. Pastor, your, your math is incorrect. Love God, love people. But listen, not so fast. I don't know about you, but there are days when it's hard to love people. Anybody experience this? Okay. If they're sitting next to you, don't be like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. I mean, that's just, you don't, you don't, don't go there. Okay. But really, have you butted heads 
with somebody before. I, I remember in high school, my senior year of high school, we got a new principal and we did not get along. Okay, he's going to remain nameless in this illustration, but it's like wherever he was, I was, we could not figure it out. It was quite the opposite of getting along. But then I graduated college. I took a job in another town and I'm, I'm going through the grocery store. Little to my knowledge, he's working in the same town. And so I did what everybody in this room would do when they saw him in the grocery store. I was pushing my car. I was like, nope. <laughs> went, down, went down the other aisle. Toilet paper's not that important, right? I mean, you got leaves and whatnot for that. That's whatever you got to do, all right? But it's not what God has called us to do. He said to love people the way you love yourself. Except he doesn't stop there. He says you're also supposed to love God. Except that's not always easy either, is it? I mean, sometimes it feels like God is hard to love. Sometimes it doesn't feel like God is even present or listening. Nevertheless, is he involved? You've been through something where you're like, God, come on, where are you at on this one? It's happened to me many of times. So what's interesting about this is in a very real way, Jesus is telling us that we can't love people without the help of God, and sometimes we need other people to help us love God. And so it's very much one thing. Loving God and loving people is two sides of the same coin. It's one job. That's why removing ourselves from the world is the exact opposite of God's goal. Doing religion alone doesn't work. Except that's what many religions teach and promote, isn't it? You got to stop doing all these things so that God will love you. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the area where you couldn't cuss, drink, or chew, and you don't go with girls who do. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was the big, that was the big thing. But uh, I remember pastors telling us that we had to burn our CDs and only listen to Christian music, except back then, Christian music was just horrible. I mean, you kids today, you've got it good, okay? There were some jams put out in Christian music back in the day. Not so much, okay? You, you just Google like Sandy Patty or Carmen or DC Talk. It's not, it's not, it's not where I'm at, okay? It's just not where I'm at. But I got, I got off easy because I've talked to some of you where you couldn't wear jeans or short sleeve shirts or even have TVs. I've talked to others of you who were homeschooled until eighth grade, and then you couldn't go to public school. You had to go get a job with someone else in the religion. It was all about rules and control. It's the entire point of the religion. You've got to do these things in order for God to love you. That's not what God said our one thing is. He said he didn't give us a bunch of rules to follow. He said you've got to love God and you've got to love people. You might jot this down if you're taking notes. God never asks you to follow his laws without first experiencing his love. God's never going to give you a big list to follow of laws until you first experience his love. God's love always precedes God's laws. I'm going to show you this in the scripture. You're in Matthew 22. Just flip a couple pages to your left to Matthew 9. Okay, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 9. It reads, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Pause. Okay, we've got Matthew, the tax collector, sitting in a booth, 
taking people's money as they go by. It's hard for us to understand this as Americans, uh, how despised and hated these tax collectors are. So let me try and put this in context for you. Imagine a foreign army invades the United States, okay? Those those clowns in North Korea, Korea, they've been launching a bunch of missiles. Let's say North Korea successfully invades the U.S. They take over the government. They set out outposts everywhere, but they need manpower to collect money. That invasion took a lot of money, and it, it takes a lot of money to fund the army and all these things. So they need some money, some people to collect money. So your neighbor, Bill, he decides he's going to go work for those fools. But Bill's responsibility is now to charge you money so that you can pay for the army who's raping your daughter, who's killed your son, and who's taken over your business. They've got no regard for you or your well-being. Like, we don't like Bill anymore, correct? Bill is a piece of trash. If your name is Bill, I apologize for that on the front end, okay? I'm not talking about you. But not only is Bill funding this army, but North Korea doesn't tell you what the tax rate is. There's no freedom of press. They don't have to tell you anything. They tell Bill what they want from taxes, and Bill is free to charge anything above and beyond what North Korea wants. He is getting very wealthy. Bill is taking money from you And it's a big deal for him. Now, we really hate Bill, don't we? Bill sucks. That's where we're at with Matthew. Matthew is Bill, and Jesus is approaching this coward, this swindler, this cheat. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw Matthew sitting in the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. Matthew rose, followed him. Time out. Now, with what we know about Matthew, at this moment, those probably aren't the two words we're choosing for Matthew. Follow me. We could think of a lot of other things within two words to say to Matthew, but then again, we're not Jesus. So let's say we are Jesus. Again, we can still think of other things to say to Matthew. How about repent sinner? That would have been a good one. How about shame, shame? How about do this? I think that's what we probably would have said. I mean, follow me. It's not cool, Jesus, to say that. Don't you know who you are talking to, Jesus? This is a tax collector. Shouldn't you make him give back all the money he's stolen? Shouldn't he have have to issue a public apology? Shouldn't he sign something that says he's done stealing all this money? No, because God never asks you to follow his laws without first experiencing his love. Watch what, <clears throat> excuse me, watch what Jesus' love compels Matthew to do. guy in your Bible named Luke, he also wrote a book of the Bible. He records the same story in Luke chapter 5. I'll put it here on the screen. It reads, And Matthew made him a great feast in his house. This is after Jesus said, Follow me. Falls him to his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you like how they differentiate between tax collectors and sinners? Like there's sinners and then there's tax collectors. They're the lowest of the low. Jesus answers them. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You can see God's love always precedes God's laws. He's just, he's, he said, I'm going to get to repentance. I'm not called to come, I've not called the, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm going to get there, but he doesn't start there. So get this, not only does Jesus have the audacity to talk to a tax collector and call him to be his disciple and not issue any rules for him to follow, but then he has the gall to go to his house and hang out with a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners. Like Jesus just went to a naughty person party. And when he was confronted on it, he shamed the religious people for not being there also. This is not the Jesus I remember hearing about growing up. I mean, beautifully feathered hair, nicely groomed beard, purple sash. Jesus would not defile himself by being at a party. Like if Jesus was going to hang out with anybody, it would have been the religious people, the Pharisees who isolated themselves from the world. They kept all the rules. Who, listen to me, had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Like that's who Jesus should be hanging out with. He should be going around praising those brothers for how they're living. Shouldn't Jesus have told Matthew, hey, why can't you be more like the Pharisees? These dudes are killing it over there. That's not how it works. Jesus had one job, and the focus of his life was his mission, to seek and save the lost. So follow me on this. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, which means little Christ, if we're going to be miniature Christs, then my life needs to look like Jesus' life. I don't need to get out of the world. I need to get in the world, yet avoid becoming of the world. Write that down. I need to be in the world, not of the world. Yeah, but how, pastor? It's all good information. I'm on board. I want to be in the world, not of the world. Well, what does that look like? Loving your neighbor. That's how you can be in the world, not of the world. You meet people where they're at just like Jesus did. And then you show them the love of Jesus. You can't love your neighbor if you're keeping the good news from them. Come on, somebody. you got to share the gospel. Now, the pushback on this is always, but pastor, I don't know how to witness to them. I, I, w- I want to do what you're saying, but I don't know how. I don't want to come across pushy or weird, and that's all fair. So two things. That you can do. It can make a difference for you on Monday because you came to church on Sunday. Number one, you might write this down. A witness is who you are. It's not something you do. A witness is who you are. It's not something that you have to do. Did you know that of the 34 one-on-one encounters that people had with Jesus recorded for us in the New Testament, 34 times people came to him to ask him questions or look for healing, whatever it was. Only one of them happened in a church. Of the 34 times, only one was in a temple, which means Jesus met people where they were at wasn't about giving them rules or doctrines or lists to accomplish. It was about a relationship. 
He says things like, follow me, because God's love always precedes God's law. Which means we've got to stop doing religion by ourselves or in our own little groups, and we've got to start living intentionally with the people around us. How? I don't know what that looks like for you. You can mow their lawn, you could wash their car, I don't know, have them over for a meal. Just be nice to people. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. Yet the vast majority of people in this country come home from work, pull in the garage door, shut the garage door, never to be seen again until the next morning. Stop doing that. Start doing life. Is that easy? No. In fact, it's very hard. Why? Because people are messy and sin is scary. It's not an excuse. You have one job. Love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what you'll do. I'll break this down for you very simply. It's not as hard as you might think. How can you love your neighbor? You ask them questions, and then the big part, you listen. You listen to what they have to say. Ask them questions and listen. You want to learn how to love God and love his people? Ask questions and listen. Here's what I like to lead with in those conversations. How are you doing? That's not weird at all. You say, how are you doing? If they say, good, you say, that's great. What's good? See, you ask multiple questions, so they have to start talking to you. If they say, bad, you say, what's bad? How can I be praying for you? That's pretty easy. There's nothing weird about those things. It's kind of weird since I started doing this, since I started caring about people and how they're doing. Here's what I can tell you about how it's changed my life. I know my guys over at FedEx, Alex, Alex is a big reader. He's reading about the Russian revolution right now. My man Curtis, he just got back from Montana where his family owns a cabin. He was vacationing out there. He met some actor, I can't remember the guy's name, when he was there this past time. My girl over at Annie C's, Kayla, she's got a three-year-old son. He just turned three. She's very nervous about that. Amen, somebody. I told her, listen, uh, whoever coined the phrase, the phrase terrible twos, they were murdered by their three-year-old. They, <laughs> they could not qualify that sentence, okay? So I said, you should be nervous about all that. I tried to help lead her in, in, in that. But uh, my man Dave over at the Y. He works at Supercar Guys, sells cars. He's got two teenage kids. How do I know those things? Because I ask people, how are you doing? And it sparked other conversations. I just viewed them as human beings who had a soul, and I wanted to show the love of God to them. I wanted to try to build bridges from my life to their heart so that Jesus could walk over to it and save their soul. That's all I wanted to do, because a witness is who you are. It's not something you do. I didn't have to lead with repentance, just like Jesus didn't. And if Jesus is really the Lord of your life, then there's no area of your life that he's not controlling, so his love should literally pour out of you at all times and at every opportunity. So that's your first thing. Understand in your mind that a witness is who I am. I'm going to show the love of Jesus at all time. And the simple way to do that is just to ask questions. And you can lead with, how are you doing? And follow that up however you need to. Second thing I want you to know about sharing the gospel. The Bible is a rescue story, not a rule book. 
The Bible's a rescue story. It's not a rule book. Most non-Christians' biggest objection to the Bible is that they think it's just a bunch of rules that will keep them from having fun. And if they want God to love them, then they've got to do all these things. But remember, God's not trying to keep anything from you. His love always precedes his laws. So can I just prove to you in like 30 seconds, summarizing the message of the Bible, that this is what God is all about, okay? Here's what you can say. The Bible's not a rule book that you have to follow in order to earn the love of God. The Bible, it tells a rescue mission. God created man to enjoy him. Yet man thought they could enjoy God apart from God. That was the biggest temptation. Satan shows up and says, you can be like God. And so we made some stupid decisions about the things that we wanted to enjoy, destructive decisions that lead you away from God. And God has the amazing audacity to make a provision to rescue us from these destructive decisions. The Bible calls that sin, these bad decisions that you make. And he doesn't want you to stay there. So he he rescues you from this pit of your bad decisions because Jesus lived a perfect life. He shows you his power by being murdered on the cross and then raising from the dead. So God's not mad at you. You can stop padding your resume about all the good that you've done because Jesus says those things are like filthy rags in the sight of God. If you'll put your trust in Jesus, the fact that he rose from the dead, the fact that he'll forgive you of your sin, when God looks down and sees you, he sees his son Jesus. That's the message of the Bible. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God rescuing you from these bad decisions and and sin in your life. And he wants to change your life. That's the story. That's what this entire book is about. How Jesus wants to lead you to repentance. Which, just for the record, that Greek word repentance is the word metanoia. There's not a quiz on that. You don't have to remember it. But it literally only means to change your mind. To change your mind about who you think Jesus is. To change your mind about how you're going to lead your life. In another way, it literally means to change your direction, that you're going this way away from God. Jesus calls you to repentance to go back towards God. So really all we're doing as a witness is trying to help people change their minds about Jesus. And then listen to me, allowing Jesus to change their minds about what their life needs to look like. You're not the Holy Spirit. You don't convict anybody of anything. I've only seen harm done in those instances. You don't have to lead with, hey, here's all the stuff you need to do to start being a Christian. Here's all the things you need to stop in order for Jesus to love you. That's not true. Jesus never did that. It's always about the relationship. The rules will come. How do I know the rules will come? Because Jesus said, you'll know my followers by how they act. He said, you'll be able to tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. So yes, listen to me, hear me. Rules are important. God does have a way that he wants you to live. But ultimately, if you get nothing else I say, you have to get this. Just like Jesus, the focus of our life needs to be our mission, which is to help people experience the love of God. It's laid out in Scripture. It's to introduce people to Jesus. You can read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 28. It's called the Great commission. We are on a mission with Jesus. And here's what Jesus said about our mission field. Jesus said, 
that the fields are ripe for harvest. Meaning, there's a lot of people who need to know about Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting to me. He said that 2,000 years ago. So I want to put this in perspective for you. Look at this graph. This is world population in billions. 2,000 years ago, it hasn't changed a whole lot until about 1900 it starts peaking. 1950 after World War II, it just skyrockets. And so if Jesus said the fields are ripe for harvest 2,000 years ago when population is less than a billion... Imagine how much more is true in 2017 when population is over 7 billion and it's projected to get even higher. The fields are ripe for harvest. I once heard a pastor talk about, you ever wonder why God just doesn't bring you up to heaven the moment you trust in him as your savior? Like if the goal is relationship, why would he not just bring you right into the relationship the moment you trust in him and believe that his death, burial, and resurrection was true? And he said the reason is because there's two things that you can't do in heaven. Number one, you can't sin. And number two, you can't witness. Because everybody in heaven is going to be a believer. And he said, God obviously didn't leave you here to sin, which means you got one job to help bring somebody with you. He then went on to tell this story, which I know some of you can relate. I can relate. Because any of you, have you ever lost a child? I mean, like like legitimately, you you could not find them. I'm not talking about just, I mean, usually it's something simple, like they're hiding in the clothes rack at Kohl's. Now, don't get me wrong, that really freaks you out. It freaked me me out. But pastor talked about how he was on vacation one year. His family and and his extended family were all at the beach. Their kids were playing with their cousins, and everybody was just kind of running around. But when they all came back, their youngest daughter was not with the group. Parents naturally asked, where's where's Lucy? Nobody knew. Panic said in. He tells his wife, you go that way, I'm going to go this way. They start running and seeking and asking everybody they can see, have you seen my daughter? She's in a pink little Barbie bathing suit. She's about this tall. She's got blonde hair. Have you seen my daughter? Have you seen my daughter? They, they're frantic. They're asking lifeguards, have you seen my daughter? And they're scared and they're wondering where she's at and they are not worried about the other kids. Those kids are of no use to them right now. And they also didn't think in their mind, you know what, we got all these other kids, she's probably fine, who cares? They were panicked. They were grief-stricken. They were running around. A few minutes into the search, the, the dad finds Lucy wandering down the beach. She's singing to herself. He says, takes a deep breath. He tries to calm himself because he doesn't want to freak her out. He walks up to her and says, hey, Luce, what are you doing? The moment she sees him, she starts to cry. Why? Because she knew she was lost. She just needed somebody who knew her dad to help her. But nobody on the beach knew her dad. And here's what I'm here to tell you. You know the dad. And he cares about his lost sons and daughters. Yet the story doesn't end there because he knew his wife was on the other end of the beach freaking out. So he picks up his daughter and sets her on his shoulders and he begins running so that mama can see my baby's fine. And what's cool about this, 
as they got to celebrate together in that moment about their lost child who's no longer lost. She's found. Look what the Bible says about this in Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God cares about his lost sons and daughters. He's entrusted to us this good news. He's called us salt, and he's called us light. And here's what I can tell you about salt. It doesn't do any good in the salt shaker. Here's what I know about light. It doesn't do any good in the daylight. If the only thing you're doing is hanging around other salt and other light, you're not doing any good. God called you to go out into the world, shine bright, and be salt. And help lead other people. And you got to get out of your comfort zone to do that. Got one job. Love God. Love people. It takes people to help you love God. It takes God to help you to love people. My question for you is how are you doing at your job? Don't do religion alone. Amen, somebody. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity just to gather in this place. For the freedom that we have to come and worship you. God, I believe that you are who you said you are. Creator of this world. Sent his son Jesus to die in my place. To pay for my sins. He lived a perfect life so I don't have to. I trust that he rose from the dead. If you're here this morning and you also now believe that, I want to invite you just to trust in Jesus in your heart. The Bible says confess and believe. He's Lord. Just in your own mind, say, God, I believe. I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm made new. Thank you for saving me. God, I thank you for new life. I thank you for all the lives represented here today. God, I'm asking that you help each person leave this place new. Maybe they've got a new mission. Maybe they need to bring people along with them in this mission. But I just ask you to send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to encourage each person today to learn how to love you better and to learn how to love their neighbor and share this good news that you've changed their life. I ask that you don't let any person in this place ever be so surrounded with religious people that they forget their call to seek and save and help find the lost so that you can save them. God, I just invite you to Do your work in a powerful way in each person's heart today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.